This is Comic Shenanigans, episode 468, a conversation with Adam Glass. Welcome to the Comic Shenanigans podcast. I'm your host, Adam Chapman, and this is episode 468. It's our conversation with Adam Glass. Uh, recently on, I believe, the 22nd of March, I got a chance to sit down with Adam um, and talk about his work on, well, first of all, his comic book work in general. We talk a little bit about what he's done in terms of TV uh, as well, but mainly we talk about his comic book work, and in uh, specifics, we talk about uh, his current work on uh, the amazing series Rough Riders for Aftershock, as well as his upcoming new book, uh, which we'll get into as well that's actually launching i believe in uh i think it's in may um so we talk about that, that he's got the two books uh rough riders if you haven't tried it is fantastic uh recently um we also had a conversation with uh pat olive who's the artist on that book and it's actually through pat that i was able to uh talk with adam about his book uh about rough riders as well uh it's just a really engaging and interesting book uh using historical figures to tell a really interesting story and to see these historical figures in ways that maybe we're not used to thinking of them or seeing them um and it's just been a fantastic read so i encourage you to check that uh that book out uh the first volume i believe is already available in trade uh it was seven issues i believe long could be eight now I'm, now I'm blanking on that. And uh, the newest uh, series at the time of me recording this intro on the 14th of April, I believe we've had just two issues so far. Uh, and they've been really interesting as well. Uh, it's, it's, there's a bit of a time jump. They jump forward a little from where uh, we left the, um, the team in the first series. But uh, yeah, you've know, you got to pick it up. It's, it's a great, it's a really fantastic read. And Olive's artwork is just killing it. It's so good. It's so perfectly suited to the material. And you can tell that both creators have a real passion for for uh, historical fiction um, and kind of basing it in these these lives of these prominent figures like Teddy Roosevelt and Houdini. Um, so it's definitely something you need to check out. Uh, you can email us at comicshanigans at gmail.com, like the show on Facebook, read and review us on iTunes, subscribe to us on iTunes. You can also listen to the show on Stitcher. Uh, upcoming episodes, oh, we've got a bevy coming to you. Uh, we've got conversations with, uh, let's see, Eric Larson, I believe, next week, uh, Jose Villarubia coming up uh, the week after. Then we have a spotlight on Guardians of the Galaxy 2. Um, at some point, we're going to squeeze in uh, Alex Saviak. I've actually recorded, uh, I think, like an, over an hour of content, but it's only the first part of our interview, so until it's uh, complete, I don't want to really want to put it up so uh that's being moved a little bit down the schedule um we're going to be i'm trying to think we have a lot of good stuff coming up in the next little while uh including let's see uh, conversations with brian wood chip sadarsky uh, mike martz in july um so the ramp up uh, the two issue sorry issue episode 500 is going to be a fun one with a lot of really great interviews and obviously this is summer movie season so we're going to have some spotlight episodes as well talking about movies anyways without further ado uh, now that i've preambled for three minutes let's jump right into the conversation with adam glass now the first like five seconds got cut off um when i was started recording but uh you don't really miss anything you just i think miss me saying hello and welcome to comic shenanigans and go right from there so without further ado let's jump right into the conversation with adam glass oh it's been a crazy day but i'm okay you know absolutely i think i saw uh, on your twitter that your episode of uh beyond borders is on tonight Yes, and I'm running another show, and I'm dealing with that and and a ton of different stuff. So it's like, and my wife's out of town with my daughter, and I have my son who's somewhere else. So it's literally been like the day of coordination. <laughs> That's that sounds a bit like a nightmare, but I guess in a good way. Yeah. No, I mean, look, I'm not. At least I'm not digging ditches. That's what I always like to say. <laughs> <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. 
Um, well, first of all, thank you for agreeing to do Comic Shenanigans. I really appreciate you taking the time out of your day to uh, join us today. No problem. If Patrick uh, says you got, you're okay, then you're okay by me. Okay, good. As long as I got uh, Pat's uh, stamp of approval. Well, let's um, let, let's let's go back. So, I mean, obviously, you you work in, in in television. How did you how did you get introduced to the comic book world? And I believe your first work on a comic was Deadpool Suicide King. So, how did that come about? Well, a longtime comic book fan. I've been reading comics since I was four years old. Actually, I had a neighbor. I grew up in the Bronx, and I had a neighbor named Eddie Pagan who had all these comic books, and he just literally used to give them to me with older kid and I just used to read all go through all these boxes and read them and you know this was in the 70s and you know and then I discovered that they were at the candy store and they were a quarter and you know I started to buy them then and then sort of started a lifelong you know you know 40 years of reading comic books and uh, about I want to say I'm trying to remember it was 10 or 12 years ago I was uh, there was the writers guild strike and I was in line uh, walking, marching with my fellow writers where I met a guy named Mike Benson. And Mike Benson had writ, uh, written uh, Moon Knight and uh, we'd start talking and we'd start talking comics and we were the same age and we had a lot of in common with comic books and had grown up sort of reading a lot of the same stuff and, you know, really rich sort of history of comic books because, like, we came up and, you know, it was Neil Adams and it was Chris Claremont, and it was Marv Wolfman, and, you know, it was like I was reading Teen Titans, I was reading X-Men, I was reading Batman, Detective, and, you know, just all these awesome things going on, and uh, then Secret Wars, and, you know, Crisis, and, you know, and, and just all really, really great stuff were happening. So, and then when we turned about 18, 19, uh, and we were growing up, comic books started to grow up, you know, there was Frank Miller's Dark Knight, and there was The British Invasion, and Garth Ennis, and... Preacher and, and Frank Miller again, you know, with Daredevil and also Sin City. And I mean, it's just, that was unbelievable. Like, I feel really fortunate. So Mike and I shared all this rich history together. And he had told me he was working on uh, a book, uh, Deadpool Suicide Kings. And he was about two issues in and had a lot of gigs going on at the time. He was juggling a lot of stuff. And he's a really super smart guy. And But he had said, you know, uh, oh, I'm having a plot thing. And we just started talking about it. And I started you know, helping him as we just walking in line, his friends helping each other out. And he just turned to me one day and he goes, you should write this with me. And I said, yeah, right. Mm, you know, and he's like, no, I'm going to call Axel Alonzo and I'm going to tell him about you. So, uh, I owe it all to Mike Benson who literally made a call to Axel Alonzo. And, and then I got on the phone with Axel and we talked a little bit and, uh, that was my entry into, so I was starting on, uh, Deadpool Suicide Scott three was my first book. And Mike and I obviously wrote that series. It became a New York Times bestseller. Uh, then we wrote Blue Cage Noir, which was, you know, one of my favorite books to write, sort of a reimagining of Blue Cage in, during the Harlem Renaissance in the 20s. And then we wrote Deadpool Pulp. And then uh, both individually did some single shots here and there. I did a Deadpool team-up book. I did a, um, uh, a one-shot story, Deadpool story. Um, and I love Deadpool, but I was definitely getting sort of Deadpooled out, you know, <laughs> um, and wanted to sort of stretch and do different things. And I was at the time, at, in between the time of meeting Mike and after the strike and after working on Cold Case and working on a show called The Cleaner, I ended up on a show that I love that I was a fan of called Supernatural. 
I worked on that show for five years, and in the middle of my run on that show, I was actually at San Diego Comic-Con, and I started talking to a couple of the DC guys there, and they all were Supernatural fans. And they said, well, you know who's a Supernatural fan? Dan Didio. And I was like, get out of town, right? And I, they introduced me to Dan, and Dan's like, why aren't you writing books for us? And I said, exactly, Dan. Why am I not writing books for you guys? <laughs> so uh, Eddie Braganza gave me a call and said, um, you know, we need someone to do a sort of supernatural-esque story on GLL 80, uh, which was an annual. And I said, well, first of all, I grew up loving the Justice League. I was like, yeah, I totally would be down for that. And then the second part of that was... Um, I pitched them like a Dante's Inferno with the Justice League and team-ups, and, and it was awesome. I got to do the book with other writers and other artists, a lot of artists from Spain, and it was just really a fun, amazing experience. I got to write Batman, which was a thrill. I had never written him before, though I was a big fan since I was a kid. And uh, I did that book, and then I'll never forget, I get a call going, hey, we're going to do this thing called Flashpoint. They're like, uh, do you want to do Legion of Doom? And I'm like, yeah, I love Legion of Doom. Like, <laughs> Legion of Doom's awesome. I grew up on Legion of Doom. And they're like, great, can you meet Jeff Johns in three hours? <laughs> you know? And I was like, uh, yeah, I think I could cook something up. And so I cooked up this whole, like, you know, and I was like, thing. And I went in, and I met with Jeff, and I was like, Black Mantra and Lex Luthor and, you know, and, and Sinestro. And he's like, no, none of them are in that. <laughs> I'm like, what? He, he, I'm like, what are you talking about? He's like, it's Heat Wave. I said, Heat Wave from Flash's Rogue Gal? Yeah, story's a Heat Wave story. And I had already agreed to do it, so I was like, uh, okay, you know. Uh, and I'll never forget, because I had sort of lived a very privileged life up to that point in the comic book world, and critically. Everything I wrote was sort of praised, and the fans loved it, and all. But they didn't sell that many books, I should say. They were not giant sellers, you know, but that was sort of, you know, not even mid-level. I'd say it was like selling 20 to 30,000 copies of a book. And also I went to D.C., and my God, those fans didn't only have strong opinions, uh, they just tore me a new one. <laughs> and I remember reading, like, just everyone hated my my book, and I was like, oh, God. And I decided to do sort of a heatwave prison story, and I had this great thing where, you know, that I loved, where he had smuggled in something to escape. A guy had smuggled in something to help him escape, and... And he muled in something. Usually you mule in drugs or anything. The guy muled in plastic bands, who I had as a bad guy, <laughs> who, like, in prison, comes out of him and helps him break out. I thought, oh, this is awesome, cool. And apparently I was the only person who thought that. So um, <laughs> I did that. I did that. And then uh, what happened, which was really wild, was they sort of, but DC loved what I did, and they liked working with me. And I'll never forget, I was walking in. It was right before Christmas. I can't remember the year, but I was with my son. He was pretty little then, five, six, and I get a call, and they're like, um, Jim Lee's on the phone for you. And I thought it was a friend messing with me. I was like, yeah, right, <laughs> right, sure, Jim Lee. Mm -hmm. Like, I, I, I hung up. And they call back, and they're like, uh, sorry, we must have got disconnected, but Jim Lee and Dan Didio now are on the phone for you. <laughs> and I said, I said, come on. And then once I realized it was happening, I was sort of like, wow. Like, you know, I mean, I grew, loved Jim's work on the X-Men as a kid, and Loved his wild story. I mean, I loved everything that he had sort of done. So they got on the phone and said, you know, uh, we're going to do, we're going to send you a bunch of books. We want to do more books with you. We're going to send you a bunch of titles. And uh, they did. And they had asked me to do a couple of different things. I said, no, it wasn't me. I didn't really see it. And then they sent me um, like a newer list and sort of like buried at the bottom. 
bottom of this like 40 title list was Suicide Squad. And I had loved John Ostrander as a kid and loved Gail Simone's take on Secret Six. And I was like, yes, that's the book. And they were like, okay, what would you do with the book? I said, um, actually, I was like, I'd put Harley Quinn on the book. And they're like, Harley Quinn? Why would Harley Quinn be on the book? And I said, because if you worked at a, because they said, oh, they had told me ground everything. I was like, okay, let me ground it for you. Uh, Harleen Quizzle works at a um, psych ward where she takes, you know, slash prison, where she takes care of, like, the most dangerous criminals in the world. And she gets turned by one of them. Uh, they're not going to keep her in the same facility. That's not going to happen. They're not going to keep her in the place where she was turned and where this person is going to be a constant reminder. They're going to want to get her healthy or they're going to want to move her somewhere else. So why wouldn't they move her to Bell Reeve? And Mike Martz, who was the head of the Batman franchise at the time, said, you know what, that makes total sense to me. Let me see what I can do. He went and fought for her and we got Harley Quinn. And as they say, the rest was history. You know, we got lucky, a little lightning in the bottle. And, you know, those books were selling in the beginning, 40, 50, 60,000 copies. And um, it was, the, you know, one of the few 52 books that, you know, was going up and not down. And I wrote 21 of those and had a great time. And DC was awesome. And uh, it was a good run. And then I just was getting so busy with my TV and my family life, my growing family, I decided to sort of take a break. And then uh, that went till um, both Oni Press and Mike Martz, who was now at Aftershock, called me and said, come do a book for us. So do you have any ideas? And I met with them, and the first idea I pitched them was Rough Riders. And they were like, yes, we want to do that. So that's how, that's a long way of telling <laughs> you how I got to Rough Riders. That's my whole comic history in seven minutes. <laughs> there you go. Now, it's interesting. So Rough Riders was your first pitch for Aftershock. Had this been an idea that kind of been percolating for a while? Or, I mean, it's it's a pretty, you know, good idea. It's a great idea, and it seemed really fully formed. So, you know, how did you kind of put this together in your head? Well, it's really funny. I was working at Supernatural with Robbie Thompson. And Robbie writes Venom and writes Spider-Man, and he also writes Silk. And at the time, he wasn't writing any of those. He really wanted to get into comic book business, too. And we were always pitching each other ideas and stuff. And I had this idea, and I, I at the time wanted to help Robbie out because I'm such a fan of his writing, and I wanted to do for him what Mike Benson did for me. And I pitched him this idea, and he said, yeah, no, I love it, let's do it. And I pitched it to Oni Press, like one day, while well, I was in the middle of my DC craziness. And they were like, yeah, that sounds pretty good, we should do it. And then I never, literally, like I was like, I had to call them like four months later and say, guys, I'm so buried, I can't do it. And then, so I just sort of left it be on the back burner, but it was always in my mind. I love history. Um, it's so funny, like, I mean, after, you know, so I, for me, it was like mixing all the things I loved about history and comic books. I'm a gigantic Harry Houdini fan. I'm a gigantic Thomas Edison fan. I'm a gigantic Teddy Roosevelt fan. I just love that time and that place. And I love Jack Johnson because I love boxing. So it was a, really a way of like, how do I mix all these things I love together? And that's when I sort of got the idea for the story. Next course, people right away were like, well, it's League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. I was like, okay, I can see where you're making that. To me, these were real characters that, you know, lived and mixed with real history. And so I felt it was a little different, but I understand any team up of historical characters, either real or not real, that was the thing. And uh, 
you know, Mike Martz and uh, John and Lee Kramer um, and Joe Pruitt really right away sort of tuned in and got it and, uh, and, and said, yeah, we should, we should do that. And, I mean, it was instant. I pitched to them, and they basically were like, stop, don't pitch us anything else like that. We want to do that. So it was really cool because I was like, you know, it's the second time that somebody was interested in it, and this time I was not going to let that opportunity slip again. And I was doing another book for Oni at that time, so I didn't want to go back and say, hey, guys, remember that book? Because we were already doing a book. So it seemed like doing it this way was the best way. And it was because uh, they put together a heck of a team. And, um, and here we are doing our second chapter of it. Now I, I I know I asked Pat this, and I now I am remiss. I, I now I can't quite remember how did how did he end up kind of joining the team, and uh, you know, and how do you guys kind of collaborate together? I know you're very detailed. Yeah, you know, I mean, what's really great is look, I was a fan of Pat Spider Man stuff, so like you know, there was you know a list. It was a very short list. There were two or three artists, and Mike Mark said to me, you know, you know, also Pat is available, Olive, and I was like, oh my God, I remember his stuff, I love his stuff, and, and what I really loved about it was I thought he was really good at sort of, you know, I wanted to have a realism to it, so I always felt like his stuff was comic book friendly, but at the same time had a real weight to it, you know, um, and, uh, and, and he drew really hard lines, and, and you know, it was, uh, to me, he, he, I just loved his style. So they reached out to him, and he said he did a sketch. I remember they they were like, well, "Let's see, let him do a sketch." And he did a sketch of Roosevelt and sent it in, and I was like, "Yep, <laughs> like <laughs> that's it. That's 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 an unbelievable Teddy Roosevelt. He understands Teddy Roosevelt." So I was like, "Then he's the guy." And I mean, I wrote the first sketch. I mean, the first script, and he started sending his sketches pretty quickly afterwards. And I was just, you know, I always say this to this day, man. He blows me away. I mean, it's like Christmas. Every time he sends me a, you know, a, a PDF or a JPEG of, of something, it's, it always comes out better than I even dreamed it to be. Um, and I still feel like with Pat, we have such a shorthand. We both love history. We both grew up reading comics at the same time. So we, there's a lot of, like, little references in there. And, you know, sometimes I'm very detailed about what I want. And then sometimes I just want Pat to sort of have the freedom to do what he does so great. So it's, it, I think it's a mixed thing. And, you know, we rarely... I joke because we, we try to catch up and talk a couple of times a year. We're both busy. But, like, we barely ever talk on the phone. And, and <laughs> our emails are so short. And most of the time, to be honest with you, I get the pages and I'm like, yep. <laughs> like, <laughs> I rarely have no. And if it's a note, it's usually so small. And he's like, got it, thanks. Like, you know, we have a thing going on now. I'm not going to say the character, but the hat I described as sort of like a Dixie hat, Dixie jazz hat. So I just wanted the brim larger. Like, that's the kind of stuff we say to each other. Like, can you make the brim larger? Sure. You know, like, no problem. <laughs> uh, so, and he's researched, like, if I, I try to research and send him stuff, and then he'll research on top of that and find stuff. So, together we're like, you know, I think we're both like two kids from, we, we both feel like two kids in a candy shop, you know? Um, and I think we just both feel so lucky to turn around and, you know, be part of this and get to tell and do this story. It's awesome, you know? Mm -hmm. Well, it's interesting that, as you said, you guys kind of both have a, you know, um, you lean towards history. I mean, when I talked with Pat, the amount of detail he puts into, you know, the line work to make sure like the, that the, the, um, 
the attire is appropriate, that everything kind of looks, period, uh, is impeccable, and that it kind of matches the, the tone of your script, again, uh, is also evoking this time period, and it does it so effortlessly. Uh, agreed, man. I could have found a better partner for this. I think we both have such a passion for history and wanting to get it right, and also commitment to... And by the way, I mean, great, and, you know, it's like everybody on this book, it's like, it's, we all joke, it's like the A-team, you know, like, we just hope we get to keep doing this book and tell more and more chapters of it, you know, and, and uh, as long as it keeps selling, hopefully we'll get to do that, because I got at least four or five chapters in me, uh, off the top of my head, and I'm sure if gun puts in my head, I can think of more. <laughs> Now, with the original series, um, when you first kind of were, were coming up with it, I mean, you've kind of mentioned that you're a Houdini fan and a, a Roosevelt fan. What about it kind of made you think that, yes, Teddy Roosevelt's our, our you know, kind of our, uh, our square-jawed leader, and how did you kind of figure out that this is the right guy, this is the guy who would kind of lead this team? Well, I just think he, naturally he's a leader. I've always admired him. And I also knew his story. I had read biographies about him and seen Ken Burns' biography on the Roosevelt family. And, you know, it was so funny. It didn't take me very long to be like, what did I love about this guy? And what I loved about him was he was the original Bruce Wayne. He was the original Batman, you know? I mean, <laughs> but he lived it, you know? I mean, this guy's story is unbelievable, you know? He's eight years old, and his father, he's a very sickly kid, comes to him and tells him, you know, because uh, he has bad asthma, and this is back before we had inhalers and all that stuff, and said, you know, tell you the doctors say you're going to die unless you're, you know, and the only way to not die is you have to will yourself to live and be strong. I mean, imagine being eight years old and your father coming into your bedroom telling you that you have to basically have belief in yourself and make, basically will yourself to live and make yourself strong to survive and you know and then when he's in college his dad dies and um he comes home and he's a little lost and he's a bit of a young playboy and he meets a, a woman who he falls in love with and he marries her and the day his daughter is born uh she dies and right next to him in the bedroom right next to him his mother dies so he loses his mother and his wife he's an orphan he has a baby so he hands over to his sister, and he moves to the Badlands. <laughs> and he he basically reinvents himself. He learns how to be a cowboy. He learns how to fight. He learns how to shoot. He basically goes on his Batman journey. And then he returns four years later, a completely changed man. And there's a lot of people say, you know, there's some stories, but there's a lot of things nobody knows what happened when he was there. There's this mystery about him, and he was... A rich guy fighting for the poor, you know, if not for him, we would, you know, monopolies wouldn't have been broken up, we wouldn't have minimum wage, we wouldn't have workers' rights, we wouldn't have national parks, you know, I mean, he really was, uh, you know, and, he, and yet at the same time, he was this fascinating, you know, sphinx, you know, um, he, he was the first person to have a African-American to the White House, but yet, you know, he also believed in white power, you know, he turned around and he was a, uh, you know, a, a national a naturalist, but yet he was a big hunter, big game hunter. Um, he was a very complex man, and he wasn't perfect, but I do believe he thought and he tried to make the world a better place, and in some places he fell short, and in other places he succeeded. 
what what is how have you approached him differently now that you've had the time jump between the first series and the the new series? Well, I mean, I'm once again, I'm sort of everybody, and especially him, is going by what I know. So he is, uh, and the, what the time jump did was, I wanted to show them all when they were nobodies. That was the first book. This is just. People on the prosperous, uh, or should say, these are people who all have a little something, but nobody knows exactly what's going to happen with any of them in 1898. They're sort of making their bones in the world. And then this is them on the prosperous of greatness, you know, prosperous of greatness, you know. So Teddy Roosevelt is about to become the president of the United States because of an assassination. He was made the vice president because, really, Tammany Hall in New York and everybody else just wanted to shut him up. They wanted him to disappear in the vice presidency and just go. They just thought he was a loudmouth troublemaker who could do no good. So they got rid of him, and then he becomes president, and then he's massively insecure about this because he sees himself as an accidental president. Um, and, he's, and he's worried about the way people judge him, and he has insecurities about it. And, and it takes him till his reelection three and a half years later until he really feels confident that, okay, I now belong here. you got to remember, at that point, too, he was the youngest president ever. Mm, you know, right. until JFK came along. Uh, he was 43. JFK was 42. Um, so, yeah, there was, you know, uh, once again, he he was, you know, he was such a uh, interesting guy. You know, his daughter always said of him, you know, who Alice, who he abandoned, really, you know, and left when she was born, and our mother had passed away. She said, "My father wanted to be the bride at every wedding, and the bride at every wedding, and uh, the corpse at every funeral. <laughs> That's somebody who wants attention. You know what I'm saying? So he, he was, you know, he's just so interesting. And then you, you throw in Houdini, who, you know, Houdini and Jack Johnson both really played an interesting role, and, and so did Annie Oakley, who was really the biggest surprise for me because uh, I didn't know much about her, and as I learned about her, I learned what a." Super badass she was, mm-hmm. um, you know. Uh, but but the three of them are actually interesting because they make our story contemporary, right? We mm. have a Jew, and we have an African American, and we have a woman. <laughs> a time where none of those three were really, you know, had a say in society. So, but yet these three did. They all carved out a piece for themselves that gave them a voice in a time where most people did not have that voice. Uh, that came from their gender or race. So um, they're they're all fascinating characters to me that that help make this story really contemporary. How did you kind of? I mean, there's an interesting kind of buddy relationship between uh, Jack Johnson and Houdini. How did you kind of find that, or how did that end up developing? Like as you develop their voices, how did they those two seem to jive together as an interesting pair? Individually, right? Like I'm a, bit, I'm a boxing historian, so um, and actually I was in, in, still in love with a character named Stanley Ketchell, who they called the Michigan Assassin, who was the middleweight champion of the world, and uh, he was really the one of the first big sports celebrities ever in the history of our country. And um, he fought Jack Johnson. There's a famous picture of Jack Johnson standing over a guy, you know, a great white hope, you know, who uh, is you know pulling the teeth out of his gloves. And that's Stanley Ketchell that's laid out. Stanley was 40 pounds lighter and about four inches shorter. And, and uh, what was amazing is that in a time where everybody was super racist, 
uh, Ketchell and him, Jack Johnson talks about this in his biography, he said after the fight, Ketchell won all the money back and, and, and as they gambled and basically whored around and, and went to and, and uh, played around in cat houses. So they became fast friends. And sort of Ketchell was my entry into Jack Johnson, who, you know, and I think what Jack and Houdini share is they're both others, right? They're mm-hmm. both two guys who, at least in that time, is, uh, you know, they both, they, they're both the two outsiders, you know, being Jewish and being African-American in the early 1900s America was not an easy thing. So I think they find a common camaraderie in that. And then also you could argue both in show business, right? You know, uh, Jack's a boxer, an athlete, but it was just as much, you know, uh, show business back then. And so Zudini, and they're both using that to get out of their situation, their poverty. They're actually guys who had a lot in common, you know, um, very vocal. Uh, we're not going to get, you know, let their past define them. So uh, to me, it was very simply early on became the perfect buddy pairing because you know Houdini was also very anal and liked things a certain way, and Jack was very free into the wind and you know was not as disciplined. So they just seemed like an odd couple that you know though they shared and had a lot in common, they also were enough of an odd couple that I just thought they would make a fun friendship. And I love writing the two of them; they're so fun together. You know, they just they're just you know. Two, two guys, two young guys, and uh, just on these adventures, and also sort of, you know, understanding that, like, this is crazy. What are we doing here? You know, like, this is nuts. What is, what is, what is Roosevelt and Edison pulled us into now? You know? <laughs> um, so it's a lot of fun. What, uh, what can you tease us in terms of what we're going to get as this second series kind of continues? Well, you know, I mean, I think what's really interesting is um, you're gonna, we're going to not only learn more about our team and, you know, obviously Annie's back and how much will Annie learn what Edison did to her, you know, and how will that affect her, you know, um, you know, Annie was a really proud woman and Annie was, you know, um, not only an amazing, you know, she was really the dead shot of her time, you know, I mean, she never missed or a bullseye, you know, like she, it's really amazing what she was doing, but story I love Annie the most is, you know, Annie sued um, William Randolph Hearst for slander and took him to court. It took seven years for her to clear her name because he he had reported a story of a woman named Annie Oakley who was arrested in Chicago for prostitution and drugs. And there, her name was Annie Oakley, but it was not our Annie Oakley. And Annie turned around and, and sort of went after him at a time where no one went after Hearst and won, and Hearst had to settle out with her, hmm. um, which is pretty amazing. Uh, but yet, battled alcoholism and battled her own demons and and all that stuff. So we're going to learn more about each of our characters and and also learn more and more about um, Edison. Is he friend or foe? I mean, in real life, Edison is the Steve Jobs of his time. He is you know we have historically put him on this pedestal, and the truth is, he was even a better businessman than he was an inventor. A lot of the things we have come to know of him inventing, he didn't invent himself. Other people invented. He just owned, owned them and owned the patent to them. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not he's not a brilliant man. He was, but he was also a son of a gun, you know? <laughs> um, so, you know, I think the friendships get tested. The relationships get tested. We learn some stuff about some people we didn't know. And I think all that builds us you know, to a finale that, you know, will definitely leave the team in a much different place than last time. 
And as you said, you have many more stories in your in your head. Yeah, you know, I'd like to next. Um, you know, I want to keep jumping a few years because I want to see them in all different aspects of their lives. You know, and how does how does it affect them? And also gets us to follow them. We remember when they were young. We remember when they were in the precipice. You know, next is when they're in the heart of it, like when they're at the most famous. You know, when they're at top and. With each story I tell, I want to also, uh, you know, tell a different genre. So the first one's sci-fi, right? It's a sci-fi movie. There are aliens in Cuba, you know, and the Spanish-American War, and that's why we're going there. Um, you know, this one we're doing right now is more of the conspiracy thriller, you know? They're, who, who's behind the murder of President McKinley, you know? And the next one will be more of a supernatural story, and I, I, I would love to get, you know, H.P. Uh, Lovecraft in there and... and you know, also, as we move on, visit different characters through history. Um, uh, you know, uh, what's his name? Um, yeah, Mark Twain hated Roosevelt. They hated each other. They were arch nemesis, arch enemies. So, you know, working him in, working William Randolph Hearst's stories, seeing more historical characters, but, uh, and then seeing where they're at, and then sort of eventually the end, like World War One and you know, Roosevelt and old Roosevelt and Houdini and old Houdini and Jack Johnson and Annie and Edison probably, you know, maybe not even in the story anymore, you know, like, where's he? And, you know, all these different things. So just seeing them through all the different sort of phases of their life and telling the story of this secret organization that they all belong to that nobody till now in history has found out about is, I've always thought, really cool. Absolutely. What was it like uh, putting together the uh, the, the one shot? Um, just kind of the glimpses of, of kind of future Rough Rider type teams. Yeah, no, that was really cool. I mean, I think once again that was you know um, they they had sort of pitched it to me at Comic Con. I want to say last year, and I said, yeah, it's a great idea. Like, yeah, through history, let's let's do it. And I sort of you know just came up with these teams, and once again, I was sort of like. You know, I, I, maybe it's my own crazy, just sort of like, you know, uh, checks and balances, but I was like, okay, so if we went with entertainer and we went with a sports figure and we went with, the, like, who are the people of their time mm-hmm. that would be that would be on this team? Who are the people of their time that were extraordinary or different or, you know, and I just, the thoughts and ideas of those people on adventures, you know, uh, a Mae West. You know, a Charlie Chaplin, you know, uh, Amelia Earhart, a, you know, uh, we had a criminal, right? So, you know, Lucky Luciana, you know, uh, Evil Knievel, Muhammad Ali, I mean, it was just, it was awesome. Really awesome. I had so much fun sitting around making those lists and thinking about those different characters and teams and, and then this idea that his daughter, Alice, ended up keeping it going and alive and, and running it, you know, uh, after Teddy was gone was also really cool. Now, you have another new book coming out uh, in May from Aftershock. Um, I believe that's The Normals, correct? Yes, The Normals. Huh? Now, wh- what's the what's the pitch for this, this new book? Uh, the pitch for this new book, you know, look, I think, and I, I don't think I'm original in saying this or, or anything new. I think, you know, writers either write their happiness or their fears. So... Um, this is me taking sort of like my love of comic books, my love of science fiction and the supernatural and all those things and sort of saying, here's my fear told through the lens of a supernatural story, excuse me, a science fiction story, which is, you know, at the end of the day, 
I have a wonderful life. I have a wonderful wife. I have great kids. I, I, I'm very fortunate. I'm very blessed. And what if I woke up tomorrow and found out it was all not real? It wasn't true. And that actually the story is much more extraordinary. But that extraordinary story now might cost me everything. What would I do to keep it? What would I do to fight for it? What would I do to just be normal? You know, and that's really what this story is about. How did you get paired with uh, Dennis Calero? You know, Mike, Mike Martz and Joe Pruitt just have so many great relationships. And actually, it was really funny. Dennis had done a cover for Luke Cage Noir that I always loved with Luke dancing with his girl. And, and I always thought it was a beautiful cover. And so, you know, his name was always sort of, you know, one of those guys. And I was just like, I love that Noir style that he does. And, you know, I think Sean Mark Burl does the same thing. He had worked with me on Luke Cage Noir. And I just am such a sucker for that style. And so, once again, when the list came out and his name came up, I was like, yes. Like, I would love to work with him. And I think he'd be perfect for this book. And he has been. I mean, once again, we were just having a great time. The stuff that he's doing and writing has just been really excuse me, drawing and sending me, it's just been amazing. Like, I can't wait for everybody to check out the book because I think everybody's going to, you know, I don't know if Dennis could top himself, but he's, he sure is mm, doing a great job of it. <laughs> when uh, when you write, I mean, these comics, are you doing full script or are you a little looser? And then when you get the artwork back, are you then modifying any of the dialogue to kind of fit what you ended up getting on the page? Or how does that process work? You know, I think I take sort of a TV sort of approach to it, which is, you know, I, I beat out the beats of the story for the whole arc, and I sort of send that to Mike to take a look at it. He'll give me any thoughts or anything like that, and then I go, and I put it up on a board, and then I go back, and I just start writing the stories. My scripts tend to be very detailed. Um, I remember, I oh, can't believe I'm forgetting this, but I remember asking Axel Lanza back today for... Uh, a bunch of scripts, comic book templates that I could look at. And I'm so embarrassed that I can't right now remember if it was Jason Aaron or somebody else. But I remember him sending me a script and it was really detailed. And then sort of, I think I adapted that style early on and that just became my, my style. And then what happens is, you know, they draw the pictures and they come back. And I find always when I see it with the bubbles, I see everything, it, art doesn't change, but dialogue definitely changes for me. Okay. You know, um, I fix things, I, I refine things, I see what works, doesn't work. I always find that I don't have enough um, captions of where and what I am, you know, so always like I, a bit of a, because of TV, I'm a bit of a, a structure Nazi, and I'm a bit of a time, you know, per, like, how we get here? And oh my God, I'm lost. And so I find that I'm writing a lot of like, you know, and it's later, you know, uh, the exterior, you know, outside the church, you know, like just letting us know where we are and keeping sure that the story tracks for me, thus tracks for the audience. Excellent. Well, Adam, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy day to uh, talk about your career in comics. And uh, I'm really excited to, to see more Rough Riders. I was a huge fan of the first series. I uh, really enjoyed the uh, first issue of the new series. And I'm excited for uh, your new book as well. How do you find well, the time... I really appreciate it. I was going to say, how do you find the time to juggle doing the comic book stuff and having a full, full-time uh, TV gig? It's not easy, and my wife wants to strangle me most of the time, but uh, I don't sleep much. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> I've learned that, I learned to live on very little sleep. Well, it's, uh, the, it's, it's obviously working for you, and you're putting together some, some amazing work. I 
really appreciate that, man. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. And, uh, yeah, I'll let, I'll let you know when the show goes up, probably in a couple weeks, and uh, I'll shoot you a link when it does. I really appreciate it. You have a great day. You too. Thank you so much.